Hi, good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be here today and have a chance to tell you something about some Yucatec Mayan stories. I've been working with Mayan literature for a number of years, and I should say thanks, Katie. I started at Penn State McKeesport in 85. (laughs) It sounded good to have graduated there. Man, that was an easy way to get rid of some years, years, right? Anyway, I had developed an interest in the stories. I'd made some very good friends in Hoktun, Yucatan, Mayan folks, of course, and having a chance to get to know them very well, and they knew me very well, gave me an open place into the community. Because it's just like if somebody came up to your door and knocked on the door and said, could you tell me a story? They think, wow, I better call 911. (laughs) And it's the same way in those communities, except I think they're probably even more leery of strangers than we are. So anyway, getting to know these people, I started to tape stories. And I've taped well over 100 or more hours of stories. And I thought, if you weren't sure where this area is, this is the Yucatan Peninsula. Maybe we aren't going to be able to see this well. Of Mexico. And this area right up here. I've worked from Hoktun here up through the coast, Chicxulub, over to Islas Arenas, down to Bacal and Mashkanul, and then down about this far down to Tekash. So I've covered quite a bit of territory. And of course, all of basically all of the places that I visited have been places where my very good friends have relatives or friends. And of course, extended families are very important there, and they certainly have been very important to me, because without their help, I could never have gotten all of these stories. Interestingly enough, when I first started to tape the stories, people said to me, are you going to take those stories to Hollywood? (laughs) Well, I almost fell over dead. I mean, I was not expecting somebody to ask me if I was going to take the stories to Hollywood. And of course, I told them I wasn't. I wasn't at all connected with Hollywood. It was strictly an educational endeavor. So they pretty much believed that, but yet I think there was hesitation. So that first year when I was getting stories, I was hearing stories like Jack and the Beanstalk, all sorts of fairy tales that you and I probably heard as children. But of course, there was a big difference. The difference was they were taking place in a Mayan community. They involved Mayan people doing Mayan sorts of things. So the storyline was the same, but of course everything else about it was very different. For example, with Cinderella. Cinderella, of course, was a lovely girl. However, she had this nasty godmother or stepmother And she had to dress in a simple ipil. This is the dress that the Yucatec Maya women have worn for centuries, I suppose. But you see, it's very simple. She worked out over the hot fire. When I say a hot fire, they build a little fire over some wood that they have to go and collect. 
they put some kind of a tray on top. It's probably not anything they've bought because they wouldn't have the money to buy it. Sometimes they're paint head lids, something of that sort. Making her tortillas, cooking frijoles, and doing all the things that a Mayan girl would be doing. Particularly things that her stepmother didn't want to do with the stepsisters. When it comes time to go to the ball, zap, along comes the butterfly. And of course, you know, the butterfly was her fairy godmother. And this was a very common symbol, is a very common symbol in contemporary Mayan literature. As in Christian tradition, too, butterfly is rebirth, reincarnation. And that's what it was for the Maya. So here we have the situation. And she turns, the butterfly turns into the godmother. The godmother says, anytime you need me, just... Here I am, I'm the butterfly, so just let me know what you need. So the ball came along, she was able to go to the ball, and everything turned out well. It was just like the rest of the story. After that first summer, I didn't really hear any more European-type tales. The people hadn't heard that these stories <laughs> had gone to Hollywood, I guess. And so they were comfortable enough with me that they were telling me stories that were strictly... Mayan stories. When I tried to select the stories for the book, I tried to take a look and see what were the common themes, who were the common characters. And this was what told me how I was going to organize the book. So I, I saw that I had a number of types of people, and I was going to concentrate on them, but I couldn't leave out myths or beliefs and traditions. Of course, myths are the origin of things. And interestingly enough, in Yucatan, it is not easy to hear a myth. You would think, old civilization, they have lots of myths. When I've done work in Guatemala, I've gotten myths without any problem. But here it was different. And I suppose the reason for that must be that the Yucatec Maya much sooner had more intense relationships with the mainstream society. Not that they were super close relationships, but they were more relationships than, for, for example, the Kekchi people that I work with down in Lake Itzabal in Guatemala. Little relationships with mainstream society. But here it was different. Now, thinking about what those folks said to me when I first went, are you going to take these stories to Hollywood? What has happened, and I think I've missed very much in connection of this, the people are not remembering the stories. And why aren't they remembering the stories? Now, to go down there, I can still find some storytellers. But people are sitting around watching television. They aren't telling stories to their children and their grandchildren. Men used to go out to the fields and they'd stay maybe five, six days at a time because they had to walk and the fields were many, many miles away. Then they, their economy helped them a little bit and they were able to buy bicycles. So now it was easier to ride a bike out to the fields. So they didn't have to stay so long. No more story 
processions out in the milpa. So you can see, it won't be too long that I think there won't be anybody that knows any more stories. And even my friend, she's like my sister who makes these lovely ipiles. Her children don't speak Maya, which I think is so sad. They really, they hear her speak it, and their father, who was the first one really that was helping me with the stories, he was very much a traditional guy. He tried to keep his traditions alive. So did his parents, and so to Berta's parents. However, when the parents pass on, and new people come into view, it's lost. And that's, that's what's happened, so that's what's sad. But fortunately, back to the myths, I think I'm sort of jumping around, and this is what happens in my end story, so this has to be a little typical, right? With the myths, we have origins long ago of the sun and the moon and different planets. Now we find origin stories of bodies of water, of animals, other places, of birds, etc. So things that always have to do with nature. I'm particularly fascinated with the myths because they are, they're beautiful stories. And I thought I would tell you one about Suhuiha. Suhuiha means virgin water. And she was a beautiful gal. Her father was the area's big leader. And he belonged to the Shu group of people. There were two groups of Mayas. This was back in the 1500s, the Shu and the Kokom. He was a Shu. But there had been lots of problems between the Shuis and then bigger problems against the Kokomis. So it was a very tense situation. He had done some things that indeed the other Shuis were not happy about. They weren't bad things, but they were sort of envy kind of situations. So he had to be on his guard all the time. And it was not unusual at all to hear drums beating, hear cone shells being blown, and he knew the enemies were coming, and he had to go off to war. Well, he had a young soldier by the name of Katsin Ek. And Katsin Ek was an excellent soldier. Also, he was a very fine hunter. Two qualities that a Mayan man really had to have in order to be really considered a man and really capable of being a good husband, a good provider for somebody, particularly of a family like Suhui Hus. Well, one day he was going off hunting. And he was walking along and he heard some footsteps. And he thought, oh, it's a deer. And he was going to shoot the deer, but he turned around and it wasn't a deer at all. There was this beautiful girl, Suhui Ha. She was walking along and beside her was this little fawn. And she was raising the little fawn. Something had happened to the fawn's mother. And you could tell this was a really good relationship. She loved the little animal, took good care of it, and vice versa. Well, they walked along and they kept walking. And they came to a body of water. And this whole area is called El Remate. Beautiful area. And it was sort of considered to be Suhuiha's sort of private swimming hole. 
Well, she went to the swimming hole, and she was in the water and sort of playing around and taking a bath and swimming all at the same time. And finally she got out. Well, Katsinek all the time is hiding behind a sapota tree. It's a very huge tree. And he's watching her, and she gets out, and he sort of gets behind the tree. She comes along the path, and he steps out in front of her. And he said, so hui ha, I just have to tell you, you are absolutely the most beautiful girl I have ever seen in my life. Everything about you is beautiful. Your face is beautiful. Your hair is beautiful. Look at your eyes, how they sparkle. Just gorgeous. I really love you, Suhui Ha. And I hope you can love me. Well, he kept on going and going with all these wonderful things, and I won't go into the whole spiel that he does, but just beautiful, beautiful words. And she said to him, Oh, Katsinek, I never heard such beautiful words. I'm just overwhelmed. And she said, yes, I will accept your love, but you have got to talk to my father. And if he says it's okay, then we can get married. So she left and went back home. He went immediately to talk to Kanul. And he said to Kanul, I'm in love with your daughter and would like to marry her. And Kanul said, you know, Katsinek, I know that you are a very good hunter, you're a very good soldier. But if you want to marry my daughter, you've really got to prove yourself. You know I'm in grave difficulties. I need help. And if you can help me, and we can maintain this reign, yeah, you can marry my daughter, fine. So time's going on, and every day, so hui-ha, is going down to take a bath, take a little swim, and every day when she's finished, who's waiting for her but Katsinek? Well, one day he went down and he said, You know, Suhuiha, I'm going to have to go off to war. Your father's gone off to war now. And if you listen, you can hear the drums. You can hear the conch shells blowing. And she was very sad. She had a very bad premonition that he wasn't going to come back alive. But what could she do? They both cried, and then they both left. So he went off to war. He got to the battlefield, and indeed, Kanul was really almost beaten. And he went to Kanul, and he said, Sir, don't worry. I'm going to help you, and we're going to come out of this just fine. And the battle started, and they seemed to be successful. Well, in the meantime, Suhuiha was still going down to Remate to take a bath. She got out of the water one day, and this lady came down the path and came up to her and said, Suhuiha, I have to tell you something, something very sad. I had to go to the battlefield today because my son died there, and right beside him, was Katzin Ek. He had an arrow in his heart, and his last words were, Tell Suhuiha how much I love her. When Suhuiha heard this, she passed out, and this wicked woman pushed her into the water. 
and left. The next day, Katsinek and Kanul came back. They were joyous, and the whole town was out to meet them. In fact, everybody in the area came out. They were all so pleased that the war was won. They didn't have to worry anymore about battles, at least for a while. Katsinek was looking around the crowd, trying to see the face of the beautiful Suiha. He couldn't see her. But he really wasn't dreadfully upset because he knew she was probably at El Remate, where they had been meeting and where they had said they'd meet when the battle was over. He went to El Remate. She wasn't there. So he went back to her house and asked them what had happened to Suhuiha. Where was she? And they said, well, you know, it's a strange thing. She went down there yesterday. She didn't come back. And we sent people to look for her, and nobody could find her. Well, with that, Katsina quickly left again and went back to El Remate. He took a, a boat, put it into the water, because there's a nice bottle, or bo- really a body of water that gets bigger and bigger, and it finally goes out to the sea. Some parts of it are quite rapid. So he got in his boat. He started to look around the shore. Didn't see anything for a few minutes. Then he saw something floating over there in the water. And he tried to get closer, and he rode faster and faster. And then he saw it was her body. He was very sad. He tried to catch the body, and every time he tried to pull it into the boat, the current would grab it farther and farther. And so he had to paddle faster and faster and try to get there to get the body. He finally was successful. And he brought her body into the boat. And they started. he took it back to where they started and laid the body right there on the shore. He knew he couldn't take it home. It wasn't proper. It was her father's place to do that. So he went and told her parents. And he immediately went back to El Remate again. Her body was gone. It wasn't there. But in its place were some beautiful flowers. We would call them water lilies, and I guess they are the same family of water as water lilies, but yet they're a little bit different. He's looking at this beautiful flower, and he kissed the flower, and just then he heard this divine voice, and the voice said to him, We know how much you love Zuhuiha, and how much she loved you, I am the guardian of the water, and I turned her into this beautiful flower. And now the guardian of the forest is going to turn you into a big corpulent tree by the name of Boschkatsinek. And immediately, Katsinek was transformed into the tree. And if you go down to El Remate today, you can see this beautiful place with the big tree and the water lilies in the water. And you know they are still there as symbols of eternal love. Oftentimes when people have told me this kind of story, they want to tell me this at the site where it happened. And I think it makes it all the more meaningful when you see it. So here's Katsinek. 
This is an area that tourists don't even know exists, and I guess I hope they never find it. <laughs> okay, another type of story is about the Aleutians. The Aleutians are little people. They're usually little men. They're about two feet tall. They wear very broad-brimmed hats. They smoke little cigars, wear sandals, and maybe they have clothes and maybe they don't. But they're very mischievous. They love to go into a Mayan house at night that escaped. Okay, we'll have to use this for the Mayan house. This is a typical Mayan hut. They're usually painted white. Oh, there, here we go. Thank you. I thought I got it. There are two doors, no windows, and up until about 10 or 15 years ago, they seldom shut the doors, never locked them. But then they started to bring people in from other parts of Mexico. They were strangers. Remember, they don't trust strangers. So locks came on the doors. But that was the first. Anyway, these little Lucia characters like to go into the houses at night. When everybody's sleeping, people sleep in hammocks, and they swing the hammocks until the people wake up. Then they laugh and run away. They also like to urinate on hearths. Who knows why? They do all sorts of nasty, sort of nasty things, just tricks. They usually don't hurt people, but they have. But you need to respect it. And if you are a Maya, you can show your respect to the Aleutians by leaving out little bowls of fresh corn and atole. And then they may play some tricks on you, but they won't harm you. That's sort of how the story goes anyway. There was, in Mashkanu, which is in the western part of the Yucatan Peninsula, a very famous corandero. And they loved that corandero. And every time he went out of his house, he and his wife, they'd come back, they'd open up their gate in front of the house, and they could hear laughter. Nobody was in the house. They'd go into the yard. They had a lot of flower pots along because he grew a lot of herbs for his curing. They were all upset. They were a mess. They go into the house. Everything in the house was upset. Now, you know, there's, there can't be too much inside the house because it's very big, very small. But nevertheless, it was a mess. And then he'd hear laughter, and he'd go out back. And the well was out back because that's how they had to get their water. He could hear this laughter coming from the well. He looked down. There they were, down there, and he was not too happy with this because it was a bother to him. But he looked down and decided, I'm going to fix them. I'm going to go down there and get those little fellas. Well, he got down in the water, and no sooner was he in the water, there they were on the brim, sitting there and laughing at him. And then, of course, by the time he would get up, they were gone. Other things that the Aleutians do was sometimes they steal children. And when they steal children, they usually steal them to make them into good curanderos. They take, to them, take them to caves where they give them this instruction in how to cure people and how to use herbs. 
and supposedly the best curanderos in Yucatan have been trained by the Alushis. This little guy, as I was telling our friend back there, I think he was doing some of this Alush kind of stuff because I always have him in one certain place in my house. And it's not easy to find little replicas or big replicas, any kind of replicas of Alushis. I looked high and low and in drawers and in cupboards, not there, not where I usually was. Finally, last night, I was dri- it was driving me crazy. So I thought, I'm going to get a stepladder, and I have in my office two shelves that are very high. And the only way I can see on top of the shelves is to get the stepladder. There he was, taking a nap. <laughs> so I think he was playing a little trick on me. They also played a trick on Martinez, I believe was his name. No, Rivera, who was a Spanish archaeologist who had been going to work on some ruins in western Yucatan, around Mashcanu. Well, he got there and they set up their camp. They're all ready to work. And they cleared off the vegetation off the mounds. And for goodness sakes, they got up the first morning after they had taken some of the first stones. And if you've ever seen an archaeological site, they, they line the stones up as they take them off and they have to be very careful about everything so they don't ruin any of the stones. They had been all lined up when they went to bed. In the morning, they were all back on that mound again. This kept going on for nights. And he was really upset. I mean, this is a lot of work and nothing's happening. They have to try to work so they don't hit the rainy season in the summer. And he was afraid it wasn't going to happen. However, one of the guys said to him, you know what's doing this? It's those Alushes. And they had told him this before, and he said, Alushes, who believes in Alushes? I don't believe in Alushes. It wasn't scientific. He didn't believe in it. Well, finally he said to this guy, you know, you said you could get a shaman, and he would have a ceremony to appease these Alushes in essence, to ask them permission to work here, because according to many stories, it was the Alushes that built many of those temples. So, he finally thought, this sounds crazy to me, but I'm willing now to try anything. So the guy went in, made arrangements with the shaman, came back with the shaman, they had the ceremony, he never had any more trouble. So, Alushes really can exist, can they? Do you have any questions about any of those before I go on to another one? Yeah, I think any place in the world we go now is different than it was 10 years ago. But Yucatan is a pretty safe place. Let's say the people didn't know, know me at all. I'm an American in Yucatan, they're probably going to like me. It's one of the few places in the world where we can go as people from the United States and the people like us. At one point, they wanted, they wanted to be annexed to the U.S., which I think is real interesting. And those, the people remember that in the villages. They have oil in the Gulf of Mexico. They haven't done a whole lot to develop it.
but they've had some. I've stayed varying amounts of time. Sometimes just two weeks. I've stayed as many as six weeks. And because of my teaching schedule, I have to go in the summer normally. Do you live in No, I don't. I spend a lot of time in them. But I am not a person that takes heat well. So this is very ironical that I work in Yucatan because it is so hot. And I've had several heat strokes and a sunstroke. And the doctors have warned me and told me how much I have to drink, what I should be drinking and eating, and then to be in air conditioning as much as I can. So I think if I ever really want to push up posies, that's how I can do it. <laughs> I don't think I'm ready for that. <laughs> yeah. There are, they have some aspects that are very comparable. And it seems as though, yeah, these, the, the little people are everywhere. Some of the American, our own Indian tribes have them, and they're over Latin America. Now, not all the Maya talk about Aluches. When I was with the Kachi people and the Kachikel people, they didn't know much about Aluches. So it just seems to depend on the group of, of Indians that you're working with. But yeah, there are a lot of similarities. They're fascinating folks. And there are, there are just lots of lots of stories. And in the book, I've included a lot of different kinds of stories about the Alushe. I don't speak very much of it. I've tried, and I haven't been there very much in the last few years. But I had to study Kichemaya for the work I did on the Popovu. So when it came to this Maya stuff in Yucatan, I thought, well, maybe I can get along. Well, that was naive. Should have known better. I mean, it's called the Mayan language, but except for a few words, the words are different. The grammar has a very similar setup. So like if you have a verb stem, you put in front of the stem a subject marker, an indirect object pronoun marker, a direct object pronoun marker. If it's passive, you put another marker, and then you have a did I say the tense marker? There are about five different things you can stick right on the front of a verb stem. Then there are things you can put on the back of the stem. So if you don't know what you're doing, you can have a heck of a looking thing and not, not really know what the word is. And you can look it up in the dictionary sometimes, and you can find something else. But it really isn't the right thing because you haven't paid attention to these different markers. So it's, and I don't have anybody to practice Mayan with in Pittsburgh. <laughs> and this has been very bad. I do have another linguist that I work with in Yucatan. And several summers, we spend some intensive time with me trying to learn Yucatec Maya. It's very different from Spanish and English. It has a lot of guttural sounds, a lot of clicks, a lot of sounds to me that were, I should have tried to learn them when I was little. You know, it was just, they're very, it's very, very difficult to learn the pronunciation. So I could carry on a limited conversation. And I was, you know, we were getting along with things. And then to not have a couple years when I spoke it. And I tried to talk in the car sometimes, but... There's nobody to answer me, and it's not good. And then I can, you can get yourself into bad pronunciation habits. And 
There's another problem with Maya because there are various alphabets and there are several different kinds of grammars. We don't all agree. And the linguists do seem to have a problem with that. But anyway, that's the best I can tell you about the language. This is really a long, <laughs> a long way back and a, kind of a crazy story. One of my best friends when I was growing up had two uncles. And they were engineers, worked on the Panama Canal. They had, then they came back from there. They had a little nursery in Franklin. Royal City, rather. And anyway, they would go in the winter down to Key Largo and take tram steamers. And they'd take the tram steamers over to Mexico, Honduras, etc., etc. Well, they were always taking pictures, and they loved to explore. And so they tramped around the jungles, and they found all these mounds and stuff, and then they got John Lloyd Stevens' books from his explorations. And we would go and visit them occasionally, and they were always showing us the pictures of these ruins. Well, they looked very interesting to us, so we decided maybe we should take a trip to Yucatan. And then, of course, I had read the books because they gave me Stephen's books. And then I read some more books. And then when I decided maybe it was time to go back and get my Ph.D., I thought I had this interest now in doing something with the civilization. And... That's sort of where it led. The first course I took was a course in Latin American Indian mythology. That hooked me. That, that was it. So that's how I got started. And then from there I was like to meet my friends in the village. My compadre was working with the librarian at the, at the university. He had had two years of anthropology. So he was really, he was getting into things, but he had a family and he couldn't go on. But that's, and of course, when I met him and we, we just hit it off right away, this family too. So that just, you know, it opened a million doors. The Mayan, the Yucatec story is very short. The ants were bringing corn. They didn't know where the corn was coming from. And they were, the other animals were hungry and they tried to find the corn or find the source of this cord. And in the process, they, they went through, they were told to do a lot of things. See the head of the rats, because maybe the rat can dig down into this mound where this corn's coming from. So they tried that. And I can't remember now how the story, how he catches on fire. But anyway, he catches on fire. And of course, when he comes back, he brings a little corn, but the corn's black. And it gives, it goes on and it gives, you know, the reasons why corn comes in different colors. But that's where it came from. And a number of the Mayan stories, corn is taken out of the mountain. And it's different people, different, different animals. The human being came from. Where the human being came from, corn. From corn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the Popol Vuh tells us about that story. The Popol Vuh is an old religious book of the Kichemaya. And there are four generations of men. They tried first and they made animals, the gods. And they couldn't praise the gods, so they decided they had to try again. So they tried again. This time they made a man out of wood. But you know what happened with that man. He had no heart. He couldn't move. He was motionless. Couldn't multiply. He was no good. He couldn't worship the gods. 
they tried again. And they made man out of mud. That was the second man. The third man was the man they made out of wood. Well, none of these men could worship the gods. They couldn't multiply. So time went by. And they made man, they said to the head goddess, Shmukani, make this sort of mixture out of corn. They called it the seven drinks. And so she made this mixture, and lo and behold, man appeared. The Aztec story is kind of similar because the Aztecs say they, they made this form out of corn and they put it in a hut and after seven days and have seven nights, our ancestors came out. They see the rabbit in the moon. So when they look at the moon, and if you look at the moon when it's full, now it's not going to look like that bunny that's hopping around in your front yard, but it is an abstract bunny and you can see it. And that's, it's, that comes actually from an Aztec story. And I, I can't remember right now that story. I couldn't tell you what it is. Let me tell you about another very interesting lady. Her name is Ishtabai. Ishtabai is the Yucatec siren. And she dresses in an elegant appeal like this one. Not a simple one, but in a very elegant one. And she waits in lonely places at night for a lonely man to go by. Sometimes she's in a plaza, sometimes it's on the outskirts of town. And when he goes by, she more or less introduces himself, herself, takes him off. This is the general storyline. The next morning he wakes up. He's in a bed of thorns. Ishtabai has disappeared. He's scratched up. Sometimes his clothes are ripped. Sometimes his clothes have disappeared. And he has to get home. And soon as his family sees him, they know what happened to him last night. No explanations needed. One of the, I think, the most fantastic stories about Ishtabai, and there are whole lots of different versions, and some really bizarre versions. But the one that I guess I liked the most was a gentleman who was 91 years old, still working as the receptionist at the hotel in Tekash. Just absolutely a marvelous guy. Absolutely terrific. And so dynamic. And he said to me, you know, I had an experience with her. And he's shaking his finger like this. He said, I'm 91 now, but then I was only in my 30s, my early 30s, he said. And I'm going to tell you what happened to me, and I'm going to tell you why I don't drink anymore. It's no good to drink. So he started. He said after work every day, and he worked on a Hennigan plantation. You know, the Hennigan plant looks like, well, it's like the McGay cactus. They take the leaves off. They put them in little carts that have, like, railroad. They're like railroad, little railroad cars. And a horse would pull them into the processing plant. Well, every day after work, he and his buddies were going to the cantina. And he was coming out one night, and I guess he was feeling no pain. And he heard footsteps behind him. And then somebody was catching up, and he wanted to walk faster, but he just couldn't. I think he probably was lucky to be walking at all. 
But anyway, she caught up with him. And she said, husband, we have to go home now. I'm going home. Well, she kept taking him away farther and farther and farther. And finally, they got to a house. And it was the most beautiful Mayan house he had ever seen. He went into the house, and she said, sit down, please. He sat down in the hammock. That's the common piece of furniture and the, the bed that everybody uses. He sat down, and she said to him, Look, tell me why you're drinking. He said, Well, that's what I do. Every night after work, we go and we have a couple drinks. Well, you shouldn't do that. You know that's not a good thing to do. Now, don't do it anymore. Did you ever try to quit? Yep. Can't do it. Well, this went back and forth and back and forth, and Ishtabai is getting pretty upset with this guy. She said, look, I'm not going to tell you again, but let me, I will tell you this. If you ever take one more drop of alcohol, you'll never take another. I'll see to that, and that will be the end of you. And this old guy looked at me, the fear was just radiating out of his eyes. And he said, you know, I never took another drop of liquor after that. And I know if today I take another drop of liquor, she'd come back and she'd kill me. Better than Alcoholics Anonymous, right? <laughs> Guardians are another very interesting group of people. There are guardians for absolutely everything. You've heard already guardians of the water, guardians of the forest, and a very famous guardian is Seep. Seep is the guardian of deer. And indeed, he just loves to take care of the deer, or so he thinks. Because oftentimes people go out to hunt, and they shoot a deer, and they don't kill them. And this is not good because the animal suffers. And I'll just give you, I know our time is starting to get short, just give you a very short synopsis of one story about Seep. This man was noted as a fantastic hunter. He'd go out and he'd hunt every day. He'd catch a deer. And his wife always was wanting more money. So this was a good way to make money. Some of the meat they'd eat, the rest of the meat she would sell. Well, one day he went out to go hunting, and when he got into the monte, he thought, isn't this strange? He thought he saw a corral, and deer in the corral. And deer aren't in corrals. Cattle are in corrals. And just then, this little man with white hair appeared to him and said, ah, you think you're a great hunter, do you? You think you're the best. And that dog of yours, you think he's the greatest hunting dog there ever was, right? Well, I want to tell you something. I'm pretty mad at you. Look in this corral. Look at those deer. That poor deer over there, you shot him in the ribs, and now he can't get up. I'm trying to cure him, and it's really slow. And look at that one over there. His little broken leg because of you. This is not good. I'm trying to cure him. But again, it's taking me a lot of work, and the poor animal is really suffering. So he kept pointing out all these deer that were hurt. 
and saying to the man, hey, can't do this anymore. So he said to the man, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you one more chance. And you're going to prove to me if you're really a good hunter. So if you are, I, I'm going to pick out a deer for you, and I want you to have your dog bark and chase that deer so you can shoot it. You get one shot. You have to kill the deer instantly, or you will never leave this place. Well, the man's a little bit concerned at this point. But he knew he had a good dog, and he usually was pretty lucky, he thought. He wasn't thinking about all these animals he had wounded. So the guy points out a deer. He said, that's the one. So he immediately told his dog to chase the deer, and he shot it. And he killed the deer in the first shot. And the little man said to him, you really are a good hunter, and that is really a fine hunting dog you have. And now you're both going to retire from this. You're never going to hunt again, because if you ever hunt again, you won't be alive the next day. And you may not tell anybody about this either. <clears throat> he helped the man put the deer on his shoulder. The man went home, got his salt out, started to butcher the deer up, and he was going to make jerky so he could preserve it so they'd have meat for a while. And his wife came out and she said, hurry up and get that thing all cut up. She said, I want to take it to the market. I need money. He said, you're not taking this deer to the market. This deer is for us to eat. So they bickered about this quite a while, and he keeps on making his jerky. Next morning, she said to him, look, I need money. You have to go and get another deer. And he said, wife, I cannot go hunting again. I just can't go. And she said to him, you're a lazy bum. That's all there is to it. And I can't, I just can't tolerate it. I need money. I need this. I need that. And if you aren't going to go hunting and if you aren't going to get any money, then I'm going to leave. And he said, well, there's nothing I can do. I cannot go hunting again. And with that, she got her stuff and left. Sad ending. But the poor guy did not, didn't die, right? The last section of the book are about beliefs and traditions. And I brought this along. This is a lek. They call it a lek. What's it for? Any idea? What? No. Yes. This is a Mayan thermos bottle. So they they make they grow these squash and they say if you want the squash to be more or less flat so it can sit down because when they're going out to the fields they need it flat, then you have to plant it during the full moon. There also is another type of squash they always plant in the full moon. That they, you've maybe seen pictures of them or seen them some places. They look perfectly round. That particular squash, they tell me, if you plant it in anything other than a full moon, it will not be round. It will take another shape. But it's a different type of squash. This, it's, it's the same color, but it's very smooth. It doesn't have these little bumps on it. But they have lots and lots of ideas 
about planting and just about everything under the sun about cures. If you have a sick child in your house and you can't find a cure for the child's disease, if you get a black kitten, I mean a really black kitten, not a black and white kitten, but if you get a black kitten, that black kitten will absorb the airs, the sickness of the child, and the cat will probably die, but the kid will get better. And if you're pregnant, you shouldn't eat pineapple because pineapple causes abortions. And I could go on and on and on, but I should give you some chance if you want to ask any more questions. What this has done for me personally, it's opened up a whole new part of the world for me. Before I got into this stuff, yeah, I love nature. I always have enjoyed nature. But... A shaman said to me once when I was asking him some questions, he said, if you want to really know the answer, observe every detail. Don't leave anything out. So I started to try, I just sort of did some experiments, and I looked at tree trunks. And I was talking with one of these people when we were doing this at first. Look at that tree trunk. What do you see? Well, you think it's, it's a tree trunk, right? It's brown. But when you look at the tree trunk, you can see all kinds of designs. So I guess what I'm saying, it's made, I think, made my observations, particularly in nature, very acute, made me much more appreciative of what I have around me. I better just say it's created a whole new world for me. It's made me more observant. It's made me enjoy what's around me more. At the same time, it also has done something to me about people and values. Because the Mayan people don't put value on things. And when we look at our society, what do we put value on? Things and money. Things and money, yeah, maybe they bring a temporary happiness but it doesn't last very long, and it's shallow. So if you want a deeper value, you have to go farther, farther than what's at your fingertips.